You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Bibles turn to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58. Last week we talked, we talked from Psalm 10, and we, we took a look at when David uh, multiple times in his life would call out to God, and at points along the way, David would come to the conclusion that uh, God was distant, somewhere off doing his own thing, and it wasn't hearing the cries of his people. And that is a common theme, not only through the book of Psalms, but also if you take a close look at the book of Lamentations, a lament. That lament is a, is a, is a calling out to God from a dark, dark place. And maybe you're walking through a dark place. and Maybe, just maybe, you've been calling out to God, and for whatever reason, it just seems as though He's not working, not moving, not hearing. And it's in those places that the the loneliness of the moment, the hardship of the moment, the pain of the moment bears upon our very soul, and it's a difficult place to walk. And, And last week, we looked at Psalm 10, and by the time you get to the end of Psalm 10, like many other times in the Psalms that David would write out of pain and difficulty, he would, he, would, he would make a 180. He would basically change his perspective, and he would say, yes, God is listening. God is hearing. And then he begins to call out to God to arise. If you remember last week, both in chapters 9 and 10, he calls out for God to arise and to move and to act, and that God was certainly listening, and he was hearing, and he was acting. And, I, and I've said to you many times here that that God is working 10,000 plus ways around us, and sometimes we may not only be, we may only be aware of one or maybe aware of none. But, but today, I want to I wanna shift the focus. Same topic, but I want to look at it from a different angle. Because just as David called out to God last week, and God was certainly hearing and God was certainly answering, well, there's another issue we need to, be, to, to, to deal with this morning in 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 response to or in reaction to our prayers when, when our prayers seem to be going unanswered and, and it seems as though God is distant. Maybe there is another answer here. On the one hand, we get so deep in our pain and so deep in our anguish that, that God seems distant, but God is still moving, God is still hearing, and God is still answering. But is there something else that could be hindering our prayers? Is there something else in our own life that could be causing our prayers to not be heard by God. Now, I have to be careful with what I say there because God hears and is aware of every single word, thought, and deed in our life. He, as amazing as it seems and as amazing as it is, there is not one word or one thought that is uttered or thought upon this earth that God is not fully and completely aware of. So even when it doesn't come out of our mouth, whatever is in our heart, God is fully and completely aware of it. He, he knows what you're going to say tomorrow before you even say it. You're not even thinking about what you're going to say tomorrow. God already knows that. And for Him to be God and for Him to be sovereign, for Him to be all-powerful, that, that is the reality of who He is. 
So when we're saying that God doesn't hear your prayers, what we're actually saying is, is that, that God is aware of what you're saying. He's aware of what you're crying out. But is God moving and acting on behalf of what you're asking Him? Could it be that God is not responding to your prayers and He is consciously choosing not to? Now, if that's the case, we want to know why. I don't know about you, but if, if we're spending time in prayer and our words are nothing more than just words that we're saying and we're not having a conversation with God, we're having a conversation with ourselves, wouldn't you want to know what would cause God to not respond? Because, because I know that, that what you're praying about, whether it's for yourself, your own family, uh, maybe on behalf of someone else, those prayers are important. Otherwise, you wouldn't be taking the time to offer them up to God. So if God is not responding to that prayer, then we have to admit that the problem couldn't possibly be on God's side of the equation. For He is perfect and holy in every way. So, so whatever reason that God is not responding to the petitions and the prayers that we're making, it has to be on our side. So we have to, we have to dig in and find out, well, what exactly would cause God to not respond. Well, turn back to Psalm 66. Now, before we get into Isaiah 58, we need to, we need to take a look at a few verses here just to kind of set the table. So go back to Psalm 66 if you don't mind. A couple of verses there in a psalm uh, that is written here, and, and it's, a, it's a psalm of praise. It is a psalm that, that the psalmist is saying, how awesome and mighty are the deeds and the works of God. And, and stuck right in this psalm, is a very important verse. Now, after this, we're going to go over to the book of James because I want you to get an Old Testament perspective, and then I want you to get a New Testament perspective. So Psalm 66, look at verse 17. He says, I cried out to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished, notice that statement, if I had cherished iniquity or sin or disobedience in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Now, notice what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist is saying that as he comes to the Lord with prayers and petitions to cry out with his mouth, to give praise and honor to God, and also to, to inquire upon the Lord to act on his behalf, he says, I know that when I come to the Lord in prayer, that if, that if I held iniquity, that word simply means disobedience, sin, that you are not walking with God, you're walking for yourself and doing things in your own power and your own strength out of your own pride and your own arrogance. He says, if I were to cherish that in my heart, in other words, cling to my disobedience more than I cling to God, the Lord would not have listened. Again, the psalmist says to us that, yes, God hears every single word that is uttered, but what he's saying is if we come to the Lord with disobedience, unrepentant. In other words, not seeking God to, to, for forgiveness and to give us the strength and the power to turn back to the Lord in obedience, that the Lord will not act upon the prayers and the petitions that we're making known to God. Now that is serious, folks. Turn over to James, the book of James. I want you to see what James has to say. Two, two references here that kind of dovetails or fits in with what the psalmist says and also what we're going to look at in Isaiah 58. So look at James 4, chapter 4 first, and then we're going to look at a verse in chapter 5. So James 4, let's take a look at verse, uh, let's pick it up in verse 2. So James says, you desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. By the way, the, the book of James is, is, 
is pretty straightforward. If you've ever read through this New Testament book, it is, it is a convicting book. James has a writing style that just kind of goes right at you. I mean, it goes right at your heart and right at your mind. He doesn't waste any time. He has very little fluff in this book, and there you see it. Look at verse 3. Well, let me back up. You covet and you can't obtain. You fight and you quarrel, so you do not have because you do not ask. And then verse 3, he says, you ask, but you do not receive. Now, now pay attention to this. James invites his hearers to ask God to move on their behalf because of the quarreling and the fighting that was going on in this group of people. He says, you don't have because you haven't asked. So what you need to do is you need to ask. So he invites them to ask, but then he says this, you ask, but you do not receive. So they were already in the process of asking God, making petitions, but you do not receive. Why is that? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then he says in verse 4, you adulterous people. So James says they're asking, but they're not receiving. The reason they're asking and not receiving is because they're asking it from a selfish desire. You see, the motivation behind the prayer, the motivation behind what they're asking, God knows that too. And then look at chapter 5, verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 16. Verse 16, you, you know this verse, you've probably maybe quoted it, uh, the latter part of this especially. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. James says, now look, pray on behalf of one another and each other's needs that, that if there's a sickness among you, he even says, call the elders together and let's pray over a person, let's anoint, let's pray so that God will interact and God will move and God will intervene. James says, by all means, confess your sins to one another. Notice that comes first. Confess your sins and then pray for one another that you may be healed. And here it is, the prayer of a righteous person. Notice that. A righteous person, a person who is walking in the precepts of God, walking with Christ, surrendered to Him in obedience to Him. The prayer of that person has great power as it is working. The prayers of a righteous person affects much. Now go back to Isaiah 58. Now we're ready to look at what's going on with the prophet. The prophet Isaiah was called to go to the southern kingdom of Judah. At this particular time that the prophet had been sent to the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom, if you remember, the, the, nor the kingdom of Israel split after David's death and under Solomon's reign. And this split in this kingdom, they had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Some of the prophets were sent to the northern, some were sent to the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah has been sent to the southern kingdom. At this particular time frame, the Assyrians have already overrun the northern kingdom as a judgment of God upon them because they had turned to idols. They had rebelled against God. And the same thing was going to happen to the southern kingdom. That's why God kept sending prophets to this southern kingdom. Now, they were spared. The southern kingdom was spared the judgment from the Assyrian army. Out of God's mercy and out of God's grace, God did not allow the Assyrian army to destroy the southern kingdom just like he did the northern kingdom. And that was not because they were good people. It's not because, it's not because they were walking with God closely. As a matter of fact, by the time Isaiah writes, idolatry had already crept into the southern kingdom. And he calls them out on it. One of the common phrases of the prophets to the people is the same thing that James said in chapter 4, that they were committing adultery on God. Now that that phrase gives all kinds of imagery as to what's happening in the nation. What they were doing is they were living their life not for God, but for lesser things. And God says that 
you are to be in a covenant relationship with me, a love relationship with me, that, that mirrors the same union of, of marriage. But yet you have begun to chase after lesser things and other gods. And, and, and therefore, I'm going to bring judgment if you don't repent and turn back to your first love. In Isaiah chapter 58, the prophet is called to deliver a message to the nation of Israel. And what's amazing about this message is, is how well God knows the hearts of his own people. Of course he does. But what's stunning about this chapter is, is how well he knows exactly what's going on in the hearts of the people, even though the hearts of the people think God has turned his back on them. The focus of this chapter is a topic we don't talk about a lot. It's fasting. That's the overwhelming topic of this chapter, to fast. Now, as a New Testament church body, we're not commanded to fast. We're invited to participate in it. And often when we think of fasting, we think of going without food for a period of time. It's not, it, it may not be just food. You can, you can say that you're going to take a, a week or a month and you're going to stay off all social media. I'm going to tell you something, that would be extremely profitable to you. If you were to just take a month and say, I'm not going to be on the internet, I'm not going to be on Facebook, I'm not going to be on Instagram, I guarantee you that after a month, you're going to be healthful, more healthy spiritually and emotionally. I promise you, you will be. But oftentimes when we think of fasting, we think of abstaining from food. But here's the point. The fasting is not just abstaining from food. It's what we do with the time that we would have been preparing meals, that we would have been preparing eating and preparing to eat. We spend that time focused on God and going deeper in our relationship with Him. It may be through confession that we're asking God for forgiveness. It may be some kind of sin in our life that just keeps creeping back up that we fall back into. And we're seeking God's face and we're seeking His power to the point that we're willing to put something out of our life that's important to us. Eating's pretty important, right? That we, that we say, we make a conscious choice that for a period of time, we are not going to either eat or participate in the internet, or we're going to cut something out of our life, and we are going to focus our attention on God. It's an incredible thing when we deny our, deny our flesh something that it wants for the sole purpose of getting closer to God. That's what fasting is. Now, you're neither commanded to do it, but you are invited the opportunity to participate in it and when we do, God does some amazing work in our life. It's not as though we quit eating to twist God's arm. Well, we don't stop eating or stop being on the Internet or, or stop something in our life so that we think that that's somehow going to put, put God in a headlock and we're going to get Him to do our will. What's going to happen is, is in that moment when we deny our flesh something that it wants, it conforms us to the will of God. It takes us to a deep place with Him. And with the Old Testament as well as the New, anytime we see fasting, we see prayer and we see worship. Those three are together. Fasting, prayer, and worship. So when we look at this, we're not, we're not going to so much give you a, an exposition on fasting. We'll talk about it. But what I want you to see is what God requires of us if we expect Him to answer the prayers that we're putting before Him. Look at 58 verse 1. God calls out to the prophet, and this is what he says to him. He says to Isaiah, cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression. Notice that word, transgression. We saw that same word in, in Psalm as far as the sin and the evilness and the disobedience. So God says to Isaiah, Isaiah, I've got a message for my people, and I do not want you to hold back, and I want you to be like a trumpet. And he says, this is to the house of Jacob. That's another way of saying the southern kingdom. And this southern kingdom was in their sins. 
Yet, notice what they were doing, verse 2. He says, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to me. Notice that the people seem to be doing all the right things. This is incredible to me. So, so if, you were to, if you were to look at the southern kingdom and the way that they were worshiping and the way that they would go to the temple and the way that they would interact with God, you would come away with the idea that, wow, these, these, people, these people are righteous. These people are following God. I mean, notice what, how God describes them. And notice how God is observant of their religious activity. He says, they delight in me. They seek me daily. I mean, that sounds pretty awesome, doesn't it? It sounds like this group of people is doing the right things. He says that they delight to know my ways. So the people of God delight to know God's ways. They, they want to know what God's precepts and what his laws are. He wants, they want to know how to live their life for God. It sounds pretty good, doesn't it? He says that they did not forsake the judgments of God, of their God. In other words, they are seeking, look at this, they ask of me righteous judgments. There it is. They ask of me righteous judgments. In other words, they are petitioning God to want to know what God's will and direction is for their life in any particular moment. They may have a, a dispute. They may have some major thing that they're facing in the southern kingdom, and they need God's discernment and guidance. And so what they're doing is they're going to God, and they're asking God for direction and guidance, just like you would when you ask the Lord, what is your will for my life? That's exactly what they're doing. They're petitioning God. And they delighted to draw near to God to try to hear from Him to try to get guidance from him. Look at verse 3. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? So, so here's what's going on in the hearts of the people. In the hearts of the people, they believe that everything is okay between them and God. And what is stunning about this is that as they're going through the rituals of practicing their faith and seeking out God's will and delighting to hear from Him, they believe that in all of their fasting and all of their worshiping and all of their prayers, that they are in a right place with God, that there's nothing wrong. Back up to verse 2. He says, Yet they seek me daily and do not like to know my ways. Now notice this, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. Right there, Isaiah gives us some insight, or God speaking to Isaiah gives us some insight into what's actually going on. They're doing all of these things, yet there's something wrong, something seriously wrong. Yes, they're fasting. Yes, they're going into God's Word. Yes, they're going to the temple. Yes, they're doing all of these things, and they, they believe that they've humbled themselves, and here's where they've come to. They've come to the place that because of all their rituals practice, all the ritualistic practice, and all the things that they're doing, they deserve an answer from God. We wouldn't be guilty of that, would we? Oh, I'm guilty of it. The petitions that we make to God, we, we want those things answered. But we get to this place in our thinking that God owes us something. He owes us because we showed up today. I mean, I know that some of you only come on Sunday morning to check the box, right? You know what I'm talking about? you got a list of things that you know you ought to be doing. 
So you, so you come to church not to worship, not to engage in God's Word, not to engage in prayer, not to fellowship one with another, but you come here simply for the reason of checking off a box so that God will be happy with you. And also so that, that maybe somewhere down the road you can make a petition to God and then that is somehow God owes you an answer because you have been practicing piety. That's what these people were thinking. Look at verse 3. How can, you, how can we see it any other way? He says, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? In other words, the people are saying, God, where are you? We've done all the right things. We're in a right relationship with you. We're fasting. We're praying. We're worshiping. You owe us an answer. I, I think that says a lot about where their heart is, doesn't it? The fact that we would ever approach God in such a way that we would demand that he do something because we're such good people. I'm not so certain that that's wise. As a matter of fact, I'm certain that that is not wise. That's exactly what's going on in God's people who are in a covenant relationship with him. Did you know it's possible to look the part? Did, did you know that it's possible to look the part, to play the role, to go through the motions, that from the outside, everything looks okay. From the outside, you look like you are a faithful Christ follower. From the outside, everything looks like it's going in a positive, good direction. Yet on the inside, be far, far from God. That's exactly what's happening here in Isaiah 58. They, they were far from God. And what what's, has to be reminded, what we need to be reminded of on a consistent basis, what I need to be reminded is, is God is ultimately concerned about your heart. And we get so concerned on the outward practice of religion that we get so focused on the facade that we're trying to build, whether we're intentionally doing it or not, that we get so focused on what we look like and what we're doing and going through the motions that our heart gets colder and colder and colder to the place where we're just indifferent towards God. And, and then we get to the place where the facade is all we really have anymore. We, we get to the place that that our public persona in church on Sunday morning is all that our faith is. And, and, and beyond that, just right below the surface, there's no connection between you and God. That the only time you pray is when you're demanding something from Him or when your back's against the wall. Pretty much any other time, you're doing your own thing. And what's even scarier is we get satisfied with that. And we redefine our Christian walk as that, as another series of events that we attend. And then we wonder, does God even hear or answer prayer? You see, he's, he's ultimately concerned about your heart, even, even more than your request. Did you know that? That God is more concerned about your heart than he is even about your request and petitions that you're making on behalf of someone else or yourself. I'll sum this up in a simple phrase that I mentioned to the staff often. I've mentioned several to you. This time, mentioned this to you several times when we've talked about whatever issue you're dealing with. You've got to you've got to be before you do. You've got to be a Christ follower before you do the work that He's called you to do. You've got you've got to walk with Him. You've got to abide with Him. In John 15, Jesus says this over and over again that if you're not connected to the vine, 
If you're not connected to Him, getting nourishment from Him, if you're not walking with Him, you cannot expect to bear any fruit whatsoever. What does fruit look like? Well, the fruit of patience, love, long-suffering, patience that we see in Galatians 5. The fruit of the kingdom where we're seeing other people come to faith in Christ. Your witness suffers. Your walk with Christ suffers. If you're trying to do this under the guise of a facade that, that your faith in Christ is like a shell, there's really nothing behind it but just emptiness, then what's happened is, is you've got more focused on being, or you've got more focused on doing than being. Imagine this, just to help us kind of get our arms around it. Imagine this. A young man and a young woman's going to get married. They've been high school sweethearts for years. And finally it comes that day where they're going to get married and they've made all the preparation and all their friends and family have gathered and they stand before God and, and the people and their family and, and they make a covenant with one another that they're going to love one another. They have their own vows and just a, just a beautiful day. Imagine that before the reception is over, the bride decides that the best man is kind of cute. And she's gonna, she has made the decision now that she's going to take off with the best man and go to Vegas. Now, as absurd as that sounds, stick with me, it's going to get even more absurd. That she now has in her heart, after she has just made this covenant with this man before God and, the, and all their peers, now she has aligned her heart with another person and has actually made an idea and a plan to go off with him to, on a trip to Vegas rather than go on her honeymoon with the guy she just committed her life to. And then she goes up to her husband, who she just married, and tells him, listen, I, I'm going to go off with this man and I'm, I'm going to go with him and here, here's what I need for you to do. I, I need to borrow some money from you. I need some money for you to buy our plane tickets for us to be able to go to Vegas. Is that not the most ludicrous thing you've ever heard? Would that not be the most foolish thing you've ever heard? That a person who just entered into a covenant relationship with someone else would break that covenant and then go back to the one they made the covenant with and begin to ask that person for all their needs to be met, even those needs to be met that is going to support the adultery. Wouldn't that be foolish? Wouldn't that be crazy? Guess what's happening in the nation of Judah? That's exactly what they're doing. They, they've entered into a covenant relationship with God. They have made a commitment to God where they're in a covenant relationship. And in that covenant relationship, they've now turned their back on God and accepted something much less, fake idols. And it's not just some golden statue they're bowing down to. They've taken God's Word, they've turned it around, and they've turned their walk with God into a whole bunch of rituals, but there's no love relationship there at all. And as they're pursuing this ritualistic worship, they come back to God and say, Now, God, you owe us... It's exactly the same thing that I just illustrated. And just as ludicrous as it would be for that wife to say that to her newlywed husband, it's just as ludicrous for us to come to God expecting God to do all this amazing, miraculous work in our life when we are not walking with Him. Lost person, let me talk to you just a moment. I have found out, and I've seen down through the years, where lost people pray. Yeah, lost people pray. 
when there's a major event going on in their life, when something's breaking down, when something's going wrong, they will actually call out to God. I've even, I've even been in situations where atheists would call out to God. We call those foxhole prayers. I don't know if you know what those are, but it's when the bombs are going off over your head and your life is falling apart, and when you're in a ditch all alone and it's life or death, isn't it interesting how all of a sudden religion becomes important? The lost person, you can pray all the prayers you want to pray. You can pray to your blue in the face. You can even fast if you'd like. But Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that you're dead, spiritually dead. Physically alive, spiritually dead. God's not hearing any of that. Of course, He's hearing your words. He's not going to act on it. Here's the prayer He's looking for you. The only prayer that's going to matter for you, lost person, is this prayer. And that is the prayer of surrender, the prayer of faith, the prayer that says, I believe and I repent. I turn from my wicked, wickedness and my sin and I turn my life over to Christ. It's in that moment God hears and it's in that moment God responds because that is a prayer of surrender, not a prayer of, God, you come and fix my mess. You come and fix my stuff because you owe it to me. Piety can be faked to the point. This is, this is amazing. And I, I've, I've been in this place. But you can go through the motions of piety and, and worship, surface, not true worship, just going through the motions. You can go through that long enough where you believe that's authentic. You can get to the place where you think that this is what worship is. When, any, when it couldn't be further from the reality of what worship is. You see, these people believe they deserve it. And notice how God responds through the prophet Isaiah. Go back to verse 3. Why have, we, why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And here it is. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. God intimately knows what's really going on here. You see, he, he, can look through, he can look right through the facade. He can look right through the shell, and he sees the reality. And the reality is that the hearts of the people, the hearts of the people are broken. The hearts of the people are rebellious. And I, I studied diligently to try to figure out exactly what Isaiah is talking about here, what the Lord is revealing about them quarreling and fighting. And the only thing I can figure out is that if you look at the context and also in chapter 59, what seems to be happening here is when the Israelites would be going through these rituals of fasting and prayer and worship that was all a facade, it wasn't real. They were just going through the motions. They were mistreating their servants, beating them and hitting them. So you can imagine what the servants are thinking. The servants are thinking, well, if, if this is following God, if this is what it means to have faith, I want nothing to do with it. God says, you're fasting, but it tends into quarrel, turns into quarreling and fighting. You're hitting each other with your fist, and they're wicked fists. You're doing this for your own pleasure and your own gain. Verse 5, is such the fast that I choose? In other words, is this what I am asking of you to do? Is this what it means to follow God with a heart full of love and compassion? He says, of course not. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? In other words, he says to them in a rhetorical question, God says to them through the prophet Isaiah, listen, you're going through all of these motions, but am I really, is that really truly what I'm asking you to do? Am I really truly asking you to do all of these rituals when your heart is cold and indifferent, when you're doing it for your own pleasure. 
God says, of course not. You can put sackcloth and ashes on. And this is what the people of Israel would do when they were in great mourning, is they would put on sackcloth. It was a, just a raggedy old cloth, and they would take ashes and throw it upon their head while they were mourning. It was a physical a physical manifestation of brokenness over sin, brokenness over a nation. And these people were doing all of this. But it was all a show. It was all a show. Verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose? Now listen to how God describes the fasting and praying and worshiping that He is looking for. So he's uncovered the problem. He says, this is the problem. Your heart is the problem. So let's take a look at what God actually says he's looking for. Notice this. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. In that first verse along, what God is talking about is radical selflessness. What God is saying here is, is that they've made fasting and prayer and worship about them. And because it's about them, they're not serving anyone, they're not helping the poor, they're not doing anything. They've become to this point where they've become so indifferent and so cold, not only towards God, but remember, our coldness towards God always translates in a coldness towards our neighbors, always. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you can't help but love your neighbor as yourself. He says, this is what I'm looking for to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. In other words, those who are broken around you, my people should be running to those people. Notice in verse 7, Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to go cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spread up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And look at verse 9. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. What he's describing in this fasting, he says, while you're fasting, how about take the food that you would have eaten and go give it to the poor? Hey, while you're worshiping me and praying for me, why don't you go out and help break the yoke off of the people's backs who are caught in all kinds of sin and oppression? Hey, nation of Israel, you've been set apart to do exactly these things, but it's a whole lot easier to perform rituals inside the temple than it is to go out and feed the hungry. You see where I'm going here. They have become so closed off and so focused on their rituals that they have become arrogant and prideful and they have forgotten about the people that God had called them to serve. And that's exactly what happens, does it not? The more we get caught up in rituals, the more we get caught up in checking the boxes, the more we get caught up in simply going through the motions, the colder we get on the inside and the less and less and less we will do for other people. You know why? Because it becomes about you. I tell you, Satan is really good. He's really good at gradually, gradually, over time. Satan is patient in that he will gradually mislead you down a path to where you simply are a person of ritual, not relationship with Christ. And it can go on for months, even years, to where you're simply a shallow shell of what it means to be a Christ follower, but on the inside you are empty, on the inside you are bitter, on the inside you are broken, and on the inside you are demanding something from God while at the same time living in perpetual disobedience. 
That's a dangerous place. And I fear that much of the American Christian church has become satisfied with ritual. One more praise song, one more event, one more sermon, one more day in the Lord's house. Notice what else he says here. He says, if you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, notice this, and speaking wickedness. In other words, if you become obedient, if you'll become repentant, if you'll come to this place where you recognize your own sins, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. The prophet Isaiah recounts here, and he says, look, if you will, if you will be obedient to God, if, if you will follow Him and love Him and serve those around you as evidence of the reality that you're in a love relationship with your Creator, then the light is going to rise in your life. I don't know about you, but I would love for that light to dawn in my heart day in and day out. You know, we've been called as Christ followers to be the light of the world. That we've been called to be the light to the nations, just as Israel had been called to be the light to the nations, but I'm afraid that our light has grown awfully dim because of our own selfishness. And that we have supplanted true faith and true repentance and true deep relationship with God. We've supplanted that and, has, and have accepted as reality the rituals in place of the relationship. Verse 11, and the Lord will guide you continually. How many of you you don't have to raise your hand. But how many of you would love for God to be guiding you continually at whatever stage you are in your life? Whether you're a teenager, a college student, maybe newlyweds, maybe you've been married for 25 plus years. How much would you like for God to guide you continually? Well, let me tell you what the cost of admission is. The cost of admission is, first of all, surrendering your heart and life to Christ. The gift of salvation is free. But after that, we walk with Christ. And as we walk with Christ, we can hear from Him. We're not just going through the motions of rituals. We're in a love relationship with it. We're going into the deep places with it. And he says, he'll satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. You get that imagery there? The world is a cold, dry desert place. Just dry. That's why we see so much anger and hatred and animosity. But God says that if you'll walk with Him, not just going through the rituals, but your heart is a deeply in love and engaged with your Creator through Christ, He says He'll make you like a watered garden. Imagine that in the desert, in the middle of the desert, there's a garden with all kinds of vegetation growing. That's what your life can be like, that no matter how scorched and dry it is in the world in which you live, or maybe even in your home, that your life, you personally, are walking with God to such a degree you're like a well-watered garden in the middle of a desert, dry land. He says, and your ancient ruins, verse 12, will be rebuilt. I don't know about you, but my family's got a lot of brokenness in its past. My family, on both sides of my family, there's a lot of stuff that if we could go back and do differently, we would. There's a lot of stuff in my family that if we could do it over again, it probably wouldn't have been done that way. I've got addictions in my family. I've got brokenness in my family. I've got all kinds of stuff in my family. 
And there were times along the way that it looked like the foundation was about to fail. But God says here that if we'll walk with Him, whatever brokenness there is in your home and your family, He says He will help rebuild the ancient ruins, the things that are broken down, the things that you forgot about, the things that you thought were impossible to be repaired. God says that as you walk with Him as a garden being watered, He shall rebuild. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. So once our heart is right with God, once we are walking with Him, He will answer your prayers. You may not see it exactly the moment you pray it, but matter of fact, sometimes you'll get up after you pray and the answer's already there. You may get a text or a phone call saying there's been a breakthrough. The God that I serve is listening and He is willing to act on your behalf, but He will not enable you to continue to live an adulterous life apart from Him. He will not enable you to continue in your disobedience. He's not going to hand you the desires of your heart if you're going to misuse it for an idol. Some false God that you've raised up in your life. He's not going to do that. So if you're expecting that, if you're expecting God to just pour out His blessings upon your life while you walk in disobedience, it's not going to happen. Well, maybe you've disobeyed. Maybe you're in that dry place. Maybe you have gotten to that cold place in your life. What's the first step with you? Well, you're going to think I'm crazy, but it's prayer. But here's the prayer you're going to be praying, not to go to God and beg Him and ask Him for you to fix all your stuff. You're going to come to Him and say, God, I messed this up. You didn't leave me. I left you years ago. And I'm responsible. I own this. This rebellion in my life is no one else's fault except for me. I made the choice. I'm the one who walked away. God, I left you. You didn't leave me. And God, I need your forgiveness more than anything else I've ever needed in my life. But for any other need in my life, I need your forgiveness. And I need my heart restored back to a living, vibrant relationship where I'm connected to the vine because I want to have that relationship with you. Not because of what other people think, but because I'm broken on the inside. That's the prayer that gets God's attention. Maybe you've become acclimated to ritual over relationship. You've just kind of gotten used to going through the motions. I, I love reading or watching videos or, or documentaries about people who are climbing the tallest mountains on the planet. I, I love documentaries on these guys and these women who, who go set out to climb Everest. I've always been uh, just intrigued by that. And I love to hike, but not nearly on the level they're on. But there's four base camps before you get to the peak of Everest. And they have to spend days, even weeks, at each of these base camps, except for the last two or three, which is in the death zone. The death zone is where there's very little oxygen. They have to wear oxygen in that realm. But they have to spend weeks at these different camps to get their body acclimated to the amount of oxygen. And your body adapts to it. And you get acclimated to the, to the environment that you're in. But nobody ever goes to climb Mount Everest to simply go to base camp two or base camp three. The goal is to make it all the way to the top. The thing is, you get acclimated, you get comfortable, you get, you get acclimated to the place you're in, and you know that pushing forward is going to be painful. You know that going to the next level is going to be painful, but you do it because the goal is to see the world from the top. We get acclimated in our own current relationship with God, and that relationship may be cold and indifferent. We just kind of we just kind of park there. We just kind of get comfortable there. And then we replace God with ritual, and then we're stuck in that place of just cold indifference. 
All the while, God is saying, come deeper with me. i got so much more to show you. i got so much more to do in your life. But you've got to take the step. And yes, it's going to be painful. It's going to be hard. But I've got so much to show you. But you've got acclimated there. You've become more satisfied with the ritual than you have with me. Maybe that describes your walk today. If it does, there's some steps I want you to take. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father. There is some steps that can be taken this morning because you are calling us to the deep place. The deep place requires sacrifice. Going deeper with you requires us to yet again surrender all. So, Father, I pray that for the disciples in this room, the ones who've already put their faith in you, I pray that they would want you more than the ritual. That they would want your power in their life more than going through religious observations. That they would want you and your love and your presence more than the false gods that they've latched onto. That they would not be satisfied where they are. That they would hear the voice of their maker calling them to the deep place. Father, I pray that they'd be willing to make the sacrifice to walk with you there. For the lost in this room, they're spiritually dead, Father. You've made that very clear through the pen of Paul. There there is no prayer that they can pray to you that's going to make any difference other than a prayer of surrender and submission, faith and repentance. So may that be the cry of their heart today. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 